You are listening to The Bridge Between Podcast, a weekly exploration of how a family history project transformed into a search for understanding, truth, and the points of connection between people. In dialoguing with others, we begin to understand ourselves. My name is Cisco Ramos, and this is The Bridge Between. Something I referenced in an earlier episode is that my family stayed in the same communities in Mexico for over 300 years. They were there for so long, with roots so deep, that very distant family members, several degrees removed, people with the same last names, Federico Chavez Morales Ramos, they still live there. The name of the neighborhood might have changed, the cities adopted and discarded several names, And even the very streets they lived on went through several evolutions before finally settling down. History unfolded, and they remained. I've never met them, and they have no idea who I am or that I exist. But we share a common history, much more than a name. When I was putting together the collection of short stories, the word I kept returning to was diaspora. Since leaving their communities in 1885, Hacienda La Deresma in Jalisco, Hidalgo de Parral in Chihuahua, a question I kept asking was, is it fair to say that my family is a small component of a broader Latino diaspora? Before continuing, let me take a step back and get a couple of things in order. I want to talk, but I have to do it responsibly. Diaspora broadly refers to the involuntary dispersion of a population from its indigenous land. There are different kinds of diasporas that are caused by very different dynamics, such as imperialism, trade or labor migrations, or slavery. Each diaspora is rooted in a particular history, context, and culture, I don't pretend to know enough to make comparisons. I'm just going to say that it's complicated and it's really hard to figure out. There are two moments in my family's history that suggest that the answer is yes, we are part of a diasporic community. The first moment centers on a long-winded historical explanation that I'll try to neatly summarize. In 1885, Cayetano Chavez and Antonia Aranda My great-great-great-grandmother and grandfather, that's three greats, (laughs) decided to leave Hacienda Ledesma in Jalisco shortly after the Mexican Central Railway was completed. The Mexican Central Railway connected Mexico City to El Paso, Texas. And in doing so, it helped connect a country and for the first time gave average people the opportunity to go and to live somewhere else. Prior to its building, traveling was expensive, difficult, and dangerous. So most people couldn't do it or just simply couldn't afford it. When Cayetano and Antonia arrived in Chihuahua City, they lived in what I believe to be what was a poor part of the town at the time. We know this for several reasons. First, Cayetano was a day laborer at Hacienda Ledesma. In the written documents that I can find about Cayetano, 
such as his marriage certificate to Antonia, his birth certificate, such as Antonia's birth certificate and her marriage certificate. The civic official wrote that Cayetano was a ornalero, was a laborer. According to other documents of people, of people living in and around Hacienda Ledesma, it was not uncommon for people to die of completely preventable ailments, such as dysentery and fever. What this taught me is that life on the Hacienda was hard. Malnutrition, lack of clean water, constantly being underpaid, if you were paid at all, it all took a toll. It helped explain why parents died at an early age, why a noticeable number of children made it to their first birthday, or why the first decision people made after the railway was built was to get out and to go somewhere else. Life was hard, no question. And according to the Mexican historian Jesus Gomez Serrano, the very point of a hacienda was to extract resources through cheap labor on the inside while allowing the owners of the hacienda to spend their capital on the outside. In this way, and in this light, I think there are parallels between plantations in the southern United States and haciendas in Mexico. Now keep in mind, there are very, these are very different contexts, but their underlying points and motivations seem to have something in common. The second moment occurred in 1931, when my great-grandfather, Abelino Federico, was repatriated from Los Angeles, California, to Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. Repatriation means that Abelino, his wife Josefa Ruelas, and their five children were forcibly moved by the United States government. I don't like to use the term deported. There's a violence there that's hard to digest and a sense of dignity and humanity that is being purposefully denied. From what we understand, from 1929 to 1936, the United States government repatriated approximately 400,000 to 2 million Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. Historians actually call it the Mexican repatriation. It is estimated that 60% of those repatriated were birthright citizens of the United States. In essence, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans at that time were widely blamed by Anglo-Americans for exacerbating the overall economic downturn of the Great Depression. Does this sound familiar? It certainly resonates today. History repeats. At the same time, at, or at that time, Mexicans were further targeted because of their proximity to the Mexican border, and I quote, the physical distinctiveness of mestizos and easily identifiable barrios, end quote. While supported by the federal government, actual repatriations were largely organized and carried out by city and state governments, often with support from local private entities. My family was repatriated in 1931. My grandmother, Angela Federico, was born in Los Angeles, California, and shortly thereafter, 
went to school and lived in Ciudad Juarez, and she was a living testament to this experience. To return to the question I posed earlier, is it fair to say that my family is a small component of a broader Latino diaspora? The answer is unequivocally, yes, we are. I'm still learning about this process and what it means and how my understanding of our history and identity is changing. What I can say is that this aspect of my history gives me a deep appreciation, not only of what they went through, but also a way to relate to other diasporas and other travelers. It gives me empathy. It gives me patience. It reminds me that my position in the United States sometimes feels precarious. It's happened before, it can happen again. Regardless of what's been presented and imposed upon us, I'm proud. I'm proud because we continue to walk forward, to create, to grow, and to live. Adelante, siempre adelante. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Bridge Between. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to reach out, you can email me at thebridgebetween at gmail.com. That's thebridgebtwn at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at thebridgebetween. That's thebridgebtwn. Thank you for listening.